Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. And we've got a really great show today. We've got Dr. Connect Thinkpan of Welltrust Partners, LLC, and she is a corporate mental health consultant and speaker who spent the last 15 plus years helping hundreds of diverse companies from around the globe to develop, implement, and integrate mental health strategies. She does this by developing tailored initiatives, delivering trainings and speaking, which result in a more resilient, productive, and engaged workforce within each company. Her innovative methodology when working with companies has awarded her the top 100 healthcare visionaries by the International Forum of of Advancement in Healthcare, and that's where we met, and uh, the I Change Nations Award for Women Who Add Value as a Distinguished Leader. Dr. Kay has also been featured in Forbes, Thrive Global, and Media Magazine. She's an international psychologist and licensed clinical social worker. She lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, where she believes that it's truly important to dance like nobody's watching. You're going to have to come out and do Dance Jam with me on Saturdays because there's a lot of us out there. And trust me, not anybody really wants to watch. (laughs) But when she's not working out, out or spending time with her family, you can find her dancing around the house to the beat of her own drums. And I think that's where we get our best jam on following our own beat. Thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, Lee, it's an absolute pleasure. And it is so great to chat with you again. Well, you know, so much has happened. And at at the Brain Performance Center, I deal every day with clients that are anxious and depressed. And they had just about gotten to the point where they could stomach the idea of going back to work. And we've done some performance coaching around it. We've done, you know, we've we've done some positive psychology strategies. We've done a lot of things. And then when the Delta variant has hit, oh. it's really kind of knocked them back on their feet. Okay. And here in Dallas, school started this week, mm. and that's that's got everybody because our governor would not. Uh, he did not think that masks are, ne- are necessary. Now a lot of the school districts have come in and said we're going to wear them. Yeah. But, you know, the, the future of our life has changed. And what I'd really like to talk with you about today is how the future of work has changed. Yeah. Because, you know, it used to be we never thought about, OK, how physically close am I going to be to somebody? Mm-hmm. Uh, I never used to think about that. I'm a big hugger. I hug everybody. Me too. Not anymore. No. <laughs> You know, and I'm getting tired of elbow bumping. Yeah. And, you know, I used to love to talk to just even to talk to strangers. Um, just, you know, you're riding in the elevator going up with them. Hi, how are you? Yeah. You know, I used to really enjoy that. And now I think twice about that. So when I think about it on a personal level, how it's changed us, then I think about a corporate level. That's overwhelming. Absolutely. So much to think about. It is so interestingly, I, the other day I had went into the office. We were trying to do like an open house for individuals who, because again, over the last 18 months, think about how many new people we've hired and they haven't yet ever been in the office. And so we thought we were going to have this return to office day and it changed. And when I went into the office, kind of like you, Lee, I'm such a hugger. I wanted to hug everyone. And most people were definitely like, oh my goodness, yes. And it was kind of like, is it okay? Do, do you want me to just not do anything? So it was that awkward moment for sure. <laughs> 
Well, you know, it's awkward. And some people I think will, because I've had clients tell me, well, you know, I don't want to say no, because, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to alienate anybody. But at the same time, I really don't want to hug them. You know, how do I deal with that, Lee? And so there's a whole lot of dynamics going on on the individual level. And, you know, when the pandemic first started, I had quite a few clients actually that worked in the what I call leisure and travel segment, you know, with for the airlines and the restaurants and the hotels. And my heart broke for them because Mm -hmm. it was just shut down. Yes. And if you're in that industry, I mean, not to pick on that industry, because certainly personal care, hair salons, when my gym shut down, I was crushed. Yes. But massage, you know, there's so many um, people working that personal care realm. Mm -hmm. And I I think they must struggle with how do you get started doing what you were doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, you know, that new environment for individuals. And I think that's where a lot of anxiety for, for people are coming in at. So it's not just the individuals who are like trying to figure out what is this new or redefining. I know we keep saying this new normal or, you know, returning somewhere, but I think it's really about redefining. It's redefining what we did. It's redefining what we're going to do. And it is causing a lot of anxiety because as we know, that anxiety comes from a place of fear. It comes from a place of unknown. And so we're thinking about what could happen, what should happen. And then we're creating these stories in our our minds based upon what our experiences are, what we've seen. And because we haven't experienced this before, we're pulling things from the middle of nowhere, from the lenses in which we view the world, and then creating these stories. And most of those times, those stories are the negative stories that we're telling ourselves. And then that's where we get the distortions that are coming in mind. So absolutely, Lee, when you talk about, you know, people are trying to figure out, like, what do I do now? You know, not only is it for the service providers, but it's also for the ones who are redefining what return to work looks like. Absolutely. And, you know, the brain plays such an amazing role in how we write those stories because that's how the brain processes information. It turns it into a story. But eh, the brain doesn't really care how accurate it is. <laughs> if it if it has a hole that it needs to fill, it'll just grab something. Yeah. And, you know, I do a lot of work with clients on how do you rewrite those negative stories because those negative stories play over and over and over. And I mean, the brain's job is to keep us alive. It's survival. And and this is amazing to me. At any point in time, two thirds of the cells in the right hemisphere of your brain are scanning for danger. Mm -hmm. They're looking for that threat. So no wonder we stay ready to pop into that flight or flight mode. And so many people I had a client text me this morning. I just dropped. Today was first day of school. Mm-hmm. And I knew how anxious she was about it. And I said, well, you can you can text me and tell me how great everything's going. Yeah. You know, trying to plant that positive seed. And, and she sent me a text and she said, I dropped her off at high school. It was pouring down rain, mm-hmm. which just makes it you know more awkward yeah. because you want to look so nice that first day. And she said she was the only one wearing a mask. And I and my response was, I'm sure you could only see three feet in front of you since it was pouring down rain. (laughs) So I'm sure there were a lot of people that had on masks that you just could not see. But I could I mean, I could imagine being that mom where, you know, dropping my kid off and that panic, that fear hits you. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, to that point, Lee, that you're talking about those stories that we make up or those distortions that we begin to have because of how our brains are wired, just like this particular individual you're talking about. She said, no, I was the only one wearing masks. And like you said, well, I'm sure that's because you could only see three feet in front of you because the reality of that you were the only one that had a mask is probably not the reality. (laughs) Absolutely not. And the fact that you were probably within the first 10, I know this client well. I guarantee you she was in the first 10 cars to drop off. So, but, but I think, you know, for, for young kids, the future of school and really though, you know, the, I think the workers that are going to be hit the hardest with the way work comes back are the workers that don't have a college degree, women, ethnic minorities, and young people will be the most effective because the employment in the low wage occupations, you know, I read a statistic that it's may decline by 2030 for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, we're it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what your job is. We're all going to be hit and our jobs are going to change. Yeah. Yeah. It's that redefining. Yes. So when you look, when you look to the future, I mean, you know, we've all talked about there's going to be the hybrid model and, and that's what, I think most corporations want, and I know the the workers that I work with, they want the remote model. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's got to come truth because, and this is a question I struggle with, what happens to the culture of a company if it's all remote? How do you, I mean, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. But how do you keep that culture alive if everybody's working remote? Do you have any ideas on that? You know, such a great question because I feel feel like as many organizations are returning or redefining what it means to go to the office, whether it's hybrid, whether it's coming back full time, of course, there's some industries that you can't do your job from home. So they, you know, continue to work in this environment. So whatever that looks like, I think those are definitely the things that we're talking about where what are those connections that are so important to a company culture? And I think sometimes people are like, oh, well, we've been able to, you know, continue to do work at home. But the importance of meaningful connections, and because we spend majority of our waking hours at work, we're getting many of those meaningful connections at work. Um, so whether that is, you know, returning fully to the office or if it's doing more of a hybrid model where you still have that ability to connect with people. And I think the other piece, too, when it comes to culture is the ability to humanize your business. And oftentimes when we do that, it's having those interactions with individuals. And so you know, I think most companies are kind of doing a hybrid model. And for the ones who are not, it's really about how creative do we become? How creative do we get in inform, ensuring that we have those connections, that we can create those meaningful connections for individuals? And there's some companies that I've worked with, they have been super, super, super creative during this time. I know in the very beginning, I think a lot of people did like the whole like break room breakouts where people could still have like that water cooler talk, but there's still so many other pieces that we're missing out when we don't have that. So when I do talk to companies about returning to the office, I think one of the biggest things they say is, you know, we want to continue to create these connections because around those connections is culture, around the culture is collaborations. Um, And so all those C words, connections, collaborations, conversations, communication, just continues to build off of each other. Well, it does. And I think, you know, one of the things that we all miss is that human interaction. Mm-hmm. And I think I've, I've worked with a, a company on strategizing on what their thoughts were going to be. Um, they had 
it's a small company. It's 50 employees and 48 out of the 50 said they did not want to come back to work at all. And so the CEO approached me and said, you know, how do I address this? Um, because her response is, well, heck, yeah, you're going to come back, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I don't think I'd address it like that. <laughs> uh, so let's just, you know, but if you let people know why you want them to come back to work, how important they are, how what they how they add value just being there, that's an incentive, you know, because what people are thinking is, well, if I go back to work, then I'm not going to be home in time to have dinner on the table. And I'm not going to be home in time to tuck my kid in. But they're not realizing what they're going to miss. They're only thinking about what they have now that they've come to love. Yeah. And, and I think that's such a great point because like you said, I think, you know, some, some, you know, executives are definitely like, oh, like you said, no, they have to come back. They have to come back. And I think the first thing that we really have to do is understand the reasoning as to why they don't want to come back. It might be because they are fearful of being infected with COVID. They, it might be fearful of, okay, if I go to the office, I have elderly parents at home with me that I care for or young children at home that have not at, are the age that they can be vaccinated. So there might be some real fears that are there. You know, for other people, it might be like, I like staying in my pajamas all day. And for me to have to put high heels back on, get dressed up, put makeup on, do my hair is a whole nother world that I have to return to. So, and, and having those conversations with people Again, first asking, um, and I think doing that asking in several different formats. So whether it's like a group town hall, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's smaller type of focus groups, but giving people ample opportunity to be able to express why, because in reality, there are probably definitely things that companies have or will are willing to implement in order to kind of offset some of those things as to why they're not wanting to go back into the office. So an example, if there's a real fear of being infected, you know, it's about communicating, communicating and communicating some more. So as a company, what are we doing? And not just saying what we're doing in a communication, a written communication, but even like going around the office and videoing. So if you have new policies, if you have the sanitizing stations, if you have the on-site COVID testing, kits that people can use, whatever that is, not only saying and showing, but saying and showing what you're doing. So it reduces those fears. Like some companies are going back to, you know, you have to test um, test before you return to the office each week based upon your shift. There's some companies who are, you know, having to you know, show vaccines and we won't get into that because I know that can go down a whole nother rabbit hole. Oh, but, you know, yeah. Are, but companies are definitely doing different things for to show individuals that it's they're being safe. And then I think the other part, it's more so about, well, I just like being at home because I like being at home. Then I think going to a hybrid model is kind of like, OK, it's a win win for both. You know, you do two days from home, three days in the office or, you know, three days at home and two days in the office, whatever that might look like. Well, and I think once people experiment with it and they see, you know, I do enjoy when my business was shut down for five weeks because the governor of the state said all non-essential businesses should shut down. Mm -hmm. And I do. We do psychotherapy here. We do neurotherapy. So we're very our physical proximity is very close. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision we're going to shut down and follow what the governor said. Yeah. No happier day of my life when he (laughs) said, "Okay, we can come back to work now. Did we all came back? Um, all my team members came back. We wore masks. Mm-hmm. We we sanitized every chair. We sanitized. I mean, and, and I actually like the the cleanliness and the. I feel like we're so pristine. And, yes. <laughs> and people are like, I've never seen gallon jugs of hand sanitizer. And I'm like, well, 
you know, we just want everybody to feel safe when they come in. And I think that I was surprised at how quickly my business rebuilt itself. And, and I think it's because people, when they came here, they did feel safe. Yeah. And they did, you know, they did feel, and they felt safe because I told them how safe they were, mm-hmm. you know, and I showed them. And, yep. you know, and sometimes I felt like, okay, maybe you're making a little bit too big a deal of this. But I don't think I did because people felt safe coming here. Absolutely. And they knew that all of us, all five of us, were just as concerned about our safety as they were about theirs. You got so I it. think you make the point of, you know, you can say anything you want, but, you know, actions show me, mm-hmm. show me. Mm-hmm. Actions speak a lot louder than words. Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to get into vaccination or non-vaccination. It's such a personal Absolutely. decision. And, but, you know, some, some corporations are taking the stance that you have to be vaccinated to come back to work. Absolutely. How many of those do you see doing that? Um, as far, I don't see a lot of who are uh, mandating that employers become vaccinated. However, what I'm starting to see more of is that companies are requiring people to declare their vaccination status. So you don't have to get vaccinated, but if you don't, then there might be, you know, additional testing that you have to do. They're, of course, wearing the mask at all times versus just in common areas. You have to wear it everywhere. So I think, you know, I'm seeing more of declaring your vaccination status. And then for if some reason, if, if you're not vaccinated, there's another set of rules in a sense that apply to you versus if it's not. Um, so that's what I'm seeing more of versus more so of you have to be vaccinated. But I think, you know, even for the companies that I'm seeing who's, you know, saying things such as, you know, you have to at least declare your status, that's still very um, upsetting for people where they feel like, you know, that's something that's very personal. Why should I have to even share that with you? Um, and I have seen companies where, you know, they have had some turnover um, either due to having to declare vaccination status. But I also think something that we're starting to see is the, um, I, I think they're coining the term, the great resignation, where so many individuals, not just because of this whole vaccination piece of it, but because people are really in a place of, you know, I'm taking control of my mental health. And for some individuals, that was really them reevaluating their current jobs and making the decision that this isn't the best fit for me and my family. This job did not give me the, uh, I call it life work balance instead of work life balance, but it did not do that for those individuals. And so many individuals are making the decision to resign from their companies. And so what we're hearing is, you know, we're at the great resignation period for people. Well, you know, and, and you're right. A lot of people are, re- that's one of the reasons I think my business is doing so well on an individual level is because people are reevaluating. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you know what? I don't have to live like this, Lee. Yeah. And my response to this is, no, you don't. Right. Um, you know, there are these complicating factors like taking care of your family and having a roof on your head, but you don't, you know, you cho- you pick and choose how you want that to be. And one of the things that I've heard, you know, of people in the travel industry, they redefine themselves. Mm-hmm. I had three clients that completely just said, you know what, I'm going to walk away from it. Mm-hmm. One got licensed as a real estate mm-hmm. person, and they had always loved that, you know, yeah. looking at houses. And But they said, you know what, I've always loved this. I'm going to change my occupation. Yep. So, I mean, those are options that are out there for us. And I think another thing. One person, one client, 
it wasn't if she she changed the geography of where she worked. Mm -hmm. She moved home uh, to be closer to her older parents. And that was so rewarding that that changed the whole way that she viewed the work content. Yeah. And I think that's so importantly, because I think what I'm also hearing you say and what I'm seeing for people is as they're doing this reevaluation, not only are they saying, OK, where am I at in regards to my personal mental health? But people are starting to take a step back to say, what about my purpose? Am I really in alignment with my purpose? And I think for so long when we hear the word purpose, we we saw it as this abstract concept of like, okay, what is this? How do I get it? Like, can I go to Walmart and get it on aisle three? Can I order it on Amazon and it show up in my door in two days? Like, what is purpose? But when you think about purpose, it's really about, you know, what are my values? What's important to me? What am I passionate about? Like, what could I get up and do every single day over and over? What are the possibilities for me? What's possible for me and my family? And then what am I so talented at that I just enjoy doing? And I think as people understand what their purpose really is and they start to ask themselves, is the job I'm doing in alignment with my purpose? And as people are reevaluating and they say, nope, it's not, they're like, all right, peace out. Like, okay, I'm going to do a, hopefully, you know, come up with a plan, a game plan before they peace out. But, you know, they're coming up with a plan and making a decision like, okay, I'm at a point in my life where if I'm saying yes, it needs to be in things that are in alignment with my purpose and the things that I say no to, it's because it's not in alignment. And so that's part of that great resignation that we're starting to see as well, Lee. Well, and I think, you know, it's easy because some people are attached to a certain lifestyle mm-hmm. and they do a job because it allows them to maintain a lifestyle at that level. And so then they have to really ask themselves, what are my core values? Yes. You know, is it a core value that I'm able to fly, you know, to vacation three to four times a year? Is it a core value that I drive a certain kind of car? Yeah. Um, and there's no wrong answers. No. Whatever, whatever your core values are, but so many times we have unproductive core values. Yes. So and that's true. what, you know, a lot of with performance coaching, I've seen a lot of people when they really, they can change, they just need to get in touch with what's important to them and what matters most. And I think what we all need to accept is it changes and it's okay when it changes. Yeah. When you have yeah. little kids, when I had little kids, my core values were very different than they are today. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> you know, today I'm like, I don't have kids. I'm not worried about that. Yeah. But, but you know, I think that as we start to go back, and we are, we're thinking about these things. We're thinking about what's important to us. What do I want about it? What do I want out of it? And how is it going to affect me? And mm-hmm. one of my big one of my big efforts this year has been, I feel like I'm the pioneer spirit behind taking the emphasis off of mental health and putting it on brain health. Because anytime you hurt your leg or your arm, what do you do? We go to the doctors quick, fast, yes. and in a hurry. A- amen. And then you're having a down day. And what do you do? We you tell yourself off. power through it. Come on. Yeah, like, get up, oh, girl. wrong. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's going to be okay. Turn that frown upside down. All that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, you can reach in that same drawer and pull out happy that you're pulling out sad. And while there's some truth in that, it, if we all acknowledged it's the way our brain works or doesn't work, I think it would take a stigma away 
from the mental health. Because I wrote my first book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, for one reason, for people to know it is okay to not be okay. And guess what? We're all going to be there. Absolutely. So true. You know, it's, it's kind of like as companies look at when they look at health, like you said, to your point of, you know, if you break your arm or something, companies are historically looking at the physical health, but they're not looking at the brain health or the or the mental health of aspect. But we have to start understanding that health is inclusive of health. And I even think for individuals as, you know, I feel like we've used the words mental health and mental illness interchangeably, but they are indeed different. And so I think when we talk about mental health, to your point, Lee, we all have mental health. Now, where we're at on that spectrum might change. And just because we have a challenge mental health at some point or someday doesn't mean we have a mental illness, but everyone doesn't have a mental illness. But if we do, that's also okay. Um, and so I think, you know, really changing the the verbiage around, you know, what mental health is and being able to talk openly about it to start to destigmatize it and continue to bring awareness is absolutely the direction that we are we're wanting to go. I think we are. I think most people are. And I think that, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't talk about being depressed or anxious. Mm-hmm. And now people are much more, it's more acceptable that, and I think part of that is because they, they, hear things, they see things. I mean, I'm not a real big Facebook person, but there's all kinds of support groups on Facebook and on Instagram. And however, whatever venue you choose to tap into, you know, and here's a word of warning. I have so many clients come in and say, well, I read this online. Where'd you read it? (laughs) It went to Dr. Google. (laughs) Yeah. So how about Mayo or the Cleveland Clinic or Stanford, or Harvard Health. Harvard Health is my favorite. There's so much good information out there that if we could just educate people and say, yeah, you know, understand you're having these problems, but go to the right sources and look at the right sources because we all want answers. You know, we all we all want to know everything's going to be okay. Yep. And when we start to think about, you know, returning to work, We're going to start to think about, well, what is my, how does my mental health, how does that fit in? You know, what if I have a panic attack? What Mm -hmm. if I see somebody come in, you know, a whole group of strangers and I don't know who they are and they're not wearing masks and that throws me into that panic attack stage? What do I do? I mean, I certainly don't want to lay down on the floor and grab my heart like I'm having a heart attack or start or, or start panicking. <clears throat> but we've got to have something to do. And what is, where does that support come from? Because it's got to come from the top. And I think that that's, you know, the work that you do and the people that the level the, that you work with are the ones they're going to make it known that, you know, I understand you're going to have some, some issues, some brain health issues when you return to work. And Let me tell you what we're going to do about that. So I know you probably have a lot of things that just come right to mind. (laughs) Give us give us one good one before we take a break. I think the first thing that individuals and companies will need to do is start with a well-being mental health risk assessment. Um, And I know we're about to go to break. So that's I'll leave you on that cliffhanger. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, I like the way it sounds, you know, well-being. I like that a lot. So for those of you that are wondering, what are they talking about it? Stay with us because we'll be right back after break. We'll 
be back after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. some tips from the popular UK internet site BuzzFeed to help make your life a little more fun. Next time you catch a cold, try adding a touch of magic by holding a handful of glitter in front of your mouth just before you sneeze. By the way, here's a word coined by a Canadian disc jockey for that feeling you get just before you sneeze. Anticipation. Hey, slang is just language with its sleeves rolled up. The actual medical term for sneezing is sternutation. Here's a suggestion from one expert for making a cell phone last longer. You can double the battery life of your cell phone by simply putting the darn thing down. Well, that's plain old rumble gumption, which is another word for common sense. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. Well, right before break, we kind of gave a cliffhanger for you guys and we left you out there. And that is we started to talk about well-being risk assessments. And I, for one, am dying to know what that is. Dr. K. Yes. And so, Lee, I think, you know, just in kind of simple terms, I think as companies go back and they do this well-being risk assessment, it's really taking an inventory of what well-being risk factors are within their organization and how do they overcome those. And part of that is saying, you know, what are the well-being initiatives do we have or strategies that we have or what don't we have? It's asking yourself what we previously had. Has it worked or has it not worked? And I think what when I work with companies, oftentimes what I hear is, and I always cringe when they say that they're like, well, we have this thing. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not how any of this works. Because, you know, although you might have something, it's often checking the box to say, okay, we do this thing. So I see, you know, one category of companies who are doing absolutely nothing in the well-being space. Then we have another group of companies who they're doing the things to check the box. And then we have another group of people who are doing extraordinary things in the well-being space. And so you have to really One, start there and be honest with yourself of a company of like, what do we really have and what don't we have? Are we checking a box or do we have utilization on the things that we're doing? And then from there, it's about let's go into developing strategies. Well, you know, and I think strategies is really important. One of the uh, conversations I've had with the local company is, you know, we all have X number of sick days. Mm -hmm. Well, those 
should not be called sick days. They <laughs> should be called physical and mental health days. Mm-hmm. People need to know that it's, you know, it's just as debilitating. If you've got, if you've got depression so bad that you can't get out of bed, you cannot, you have no clarity, you're, you, you can't follow a sentence. That's just as debilitating as a oh. bad case of the flu. Yeah. And, but, but it's not necessarily okay to say, I need a mental health day. Mm-hmm. And that's one initiative that I really think that on a corporate level we need to look at is just take the stigma away instead of sick days, you know, call them well-being days. But my plea is put some emphasis on the brain or the yeah. mental, you know, because phys- mental health will take you down just as severely as physical health will. Oh, my God. Yeah, Lee, that's such a great um, initiative that companies can have. But this is what I've seen, which is really, really interesting and very telling because it goes back to I know you do a lot of the brain work of rewiring our our brain and kind of the thoughts that we're having. And so I think one, when it comes to just PTO in general, whatever companies decide to call it, of course, over these last 18 months, we, of course, saw people not even taking it. Um, and when really doing research as to, you know, why they weren't taking it, of course, one, because they're like, okay, I don't want to take my vacation because I can't go anywhere. And it's like, no, no, again, that's not how this works. But the other piece of it is people have the fear that I have to show up at a higher version of myself, maybe because I'm working from home or maybe because I know the job in the industry is maybe a little unstable due to all the uncertainty. So I have to prove myself. And the way I'm going to prove myself is by not taking time off, by not taking care of myself. Another interesting thing was I was working with a very large company, corporate company. And one thing that they do is they give 10 hours and they call it life work hours. So 10 hours of life work work hours per week where where these individuals can take. So that's 10 hours per week. And over 90% of the people do not take any of those hours. And so although they're putting these initiatives in place, so whether that's some type of subculture that's happening within the organization of why you shouldn't take this time, whether it's the stories that, you know, our brains create to, uh, for ourselves as to why we should not take this time. But so we're even seeing that in companies where people are having these wonderful initiatives, they're not taking the time. And many times it's because people don't want to feel like I'm weak or I'm not doing a good job or I'm not a great worker. All those stories, Lee, that you know that we tell ourselves. Well, and that all that comes down to one four letter word, fear. I mean, we're afraid. We're afraid Mm -hmm. that if we show a little sign of being vulnerable, that they'll think we're weak that we're not as good as anybody else and or we will be rejected or we won't be considered for as high of yep. a raise or, you know, and it's all comes down to fear. Yeah. And how you manage that fear. And, you know, the we all know the brain is your central nervous system, but we may not all know you have an autonomic nervous system that the brain manages mm-hmm. and it's composed of sympathetic and parasympathetic. And when the sympathetic takes over, we go into that fight or flight. And then when the parasympathetic takes over, we go into that just want to lay down on the floor in the fetal position. We're numb. And the window of tolerance to keep those two in balance is really not that big. Mm -hmm. So being aware of what when somebody asked me, well, what does, you know, good brain health mean to you? 
It means that you keep that parasympathetic and that sympathetic in balance Mm -hmm. so that you're not one minute you're in the fight or flight and the next minute you're shutting down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's hard to do. And one of the easiest things to do is to just breathe. Yeah. Focus on how you breathe. You know, and, and people get confused. They'll say, I'll leave four by four, five by seven, eight by nine. I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. Breathe the way that it feels natural for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, the way I breathe is I put my hand down on my tummy around my belly button to see, am I getting my breath down into my diaphragm? Am mm-hmm. I getting some movement in my belly? But that works for me. Yeah. Whatever, whatever works for you. Um, if you like that four by four. Just breathe because that will help you keep your body and your brain in balance. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that you talk about breath work because it's one of those things where people are like, oh, my goodness, that was so simple. Like, I can't believe that's one of the skills that you gave me is to to just breathe. But, Lee, as you know, we we have such shallow breathing and most of us are not even breathing correctly. And it's so funny that oftentimes when I say that phrase or statement to someone, I have to check myself and I'm like, OK, including myself check your breath and you know that you have to start, you know, like you said, breathing from your diaphragm, from your toes and, and pulling it up at sometimes to be able to help you. Well, and you know, when we're talking, we have to be taking 12 to 14 breaths a minute in order to say everything we want to say, but everybody's optimal breath rate is between four and seven breaths a minute. So when you think about that, <laughs> That's a whole <laughs> different way of breathing. And you're right. Most of us are chest breathers. Mm-hmm. We don't even get that. We don't even get the breath any further down than our chest. Yeah. And because it takes focus and you have to slow down and it takes a lot of focus to really learn how to breathe slowly. What other tips do you have for people for managing their own mental health when they're at work? Yeah, I I think on an individual level, I think it's important that, and this kind of is probably right, I'm going to say this one because I think it's right down your alley, Lee, when it comes to really practicing positivity. And I say practice positivity because not only do we have our normal everyday stressors that we kind of experience, and again, those stories that we begin to tell ourselves, they're irrational thoughts that we begin to have, the cognitive distortions that we put uh, inside of that. So all of those things begin to be the negativity that builds up for us. And as we know, Lee, our brains are, our default setting is negativity. <laughs> and you know well, what? it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is because our default setting is the for the brain is to keep us alive and and to survive. And research shows each of us have three times more more positive events in our life than we do negative. But what does the brain remember? Oh yeah, the yeah. negative. And yeah. you know, so I I talk to people all the time about at the end of the day, stop and what are what are three things that you're grateful for? What are three things that happened that are good? And well, I remember, you know, that lady, she cut me off. It was my turn. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. I'm glad you processed that. I'm glad you've let that go. Now, let's start over. One or three (laughs) things. But but the problem is, and you know this, Kanette, they're never big things. Mm -mm. They're little things. Oh, well, that doesn't count. Well, yeah, it does. When somebody's kind enough and they hold the door for me, that counts. When somebody lets me turn or or I have one thing at the grocery store and the lady with a whole basket full says, go ahead. 
those are the little things, but those are the positive events that we've really got to start to focus on. Oh my goodness. And I love the fact that you said, you know, pausing and say, you know, what are three things that you're grateful for? Because that's something that I often share with individuals. I, I tell them there's three questions that they should ask themselves either at the end of the day or the beginning of the next day from the previous day. And like you said, the first one is, you know, what are three things that you're grateful for? And finding those small things, it doesn't have to be you won the lottery, um, because if you did share some with me, but nonetheless, you know, what are those three things, no matter how small they are that, you know, you are truly grateful for. But then the other two questions I think people should ask is, you know, do a check-in with yourself of how are you feeling, like emotionally, mentally, physically, how are you truly feeling? And then the third question is, what thoughts am I having? Because if we can say like, okay, if you notice that most of your thoughts are negative, guess what? It's time to rewire. It's time to rewire altogether. And of course we want to, you know, if the positive thoughts, let's do more of those. It's it's really practicing, you know, how do you rewire your, your mindset altogether? Well, you know, and it's really catching those little ants, those automatic negative thoughts, because they go through your head so fast and Ooh. so furious. You don't even know they were there. It's all, just all of a sudden, you know, I'm feeling grumpy or I'm mad at you or I'm irritable. So where did it come from? And one of the things I start with people on is we all have self-defeating thoughts. Mm -hmm. I used to have my good friend, the shoulds and the musts, <laughs> but I didn't like their other friends, the shame and the blame. Well, you, you didn't do it, Lee. It's all your fault. No wonder that didn't happen. So I learned how to change my shoulds into coulds. Well, you could do that. Okay. Well, if I did, what would happen? Well, this, well, I like that. What about this? Eh, I don't like that. What about this? Well, it's okay. Okay, I will do it. So wherever those negative thoughts are coming from, if you're catastrophizing, if, if you're all or nothing, yeah. you know, if you're blaming, if you're labeling, wherever they're coming from, if you can start to be aware and catch that little ant, yeah, and then you'll then you'll become you'll start to recognize them quicker. Um, because they are fast and they are furious. Oh, my goodness. Yes, because what does research say? We have between 60 and 80,000 thoughts per day and 80 percent of those are negative. Like every time I hear that statistics, I'm like mind blown. <laughs> but who's in charge of that? Exactly. We are. It goes back to something you said earlier is you choose, you get to choose. So do you want to choose to have those negative thoughts or do you choose to have positive thoughts? And again, you can reframe your negative thoughts at any time. It's just that you have to choose to be aware and choose to reframe it. And I think that's hard. That's harder than some people think, mm -hmm. because some people, you know, depends upon your life experiences. It depends on what behavior you saw modeled your whole life. You know, that default mode in our brain gets set based upon what's going on in our subconscious. And this is so interesting to me. Every second, the brain is capable of taking in 11 million bits of data. Mm -hmm. Research shows that anywhere from 40 to 126 bits can be used on the conscious level. My personal experience, I believe it's more 40, but mm -hmm. we don't have to do the math. Right. Where does it all go? It goes to your subconscious. And that's where people have to really do their own work. And, you know, if you're willing to put some time in and to understand why you feel the way that you feel and help that subconscious to become balanced. And I'm, I so and I so know that the 
the fastest way to get that subconscious to be in balance is to get that brain in a regulated state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so hard for some people to really, you know, they'll tell themselves on a conscious level, I don't want to think that way. I don't want to feel that way. Mm -hmm. But, but that subconscious is so strong. Mm -hmm. It's hard. And I think that something that as people go back to work, there needs to be a real initiative on some level. And of course, I have many ideas on how that can happen, but on how that we can help people just get in touch with that, that subconscious. And that's kind of an, an abstract word, but how they get in touch with, with what's driving them. I mean, when, cause when you, when you spend the time and it, you do some performance coaching mm-hmm. and you ask the right questions, people will know why they act the way they act. Oh, for sure. It's just, I don't know. Is it okay to say? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, to your point, Lee, I think two types of trainings is important. And I don't think this is like a one and done type of training that I feel like when I meet with companies that many of them do, they're like, okay, we offer this one training for suicide prevention month. And we offer this one training for world mental health day. And that's it. And they think that they check the box and solve the world problems. And it's like, no, there has to be this ongoing training that builds upon one another. But I think in saying that, I think it's two pronged. I think first it's about um, how do we, how do we recognize and respond? And I think this is more so for our leadership staff. Like you said, it starts from the top. It's top down, bottom up and middle out is kind of how I like to view things. And in understanding that, how do we teach how to recognize and respond and have those conversations? Because I can remember and I won't share the long version of the story, but um, I had an employee who actually committed suicide and in the leadership after kind of everything took place and we found out about it, one of the managers said, you know, well, her whole team was kind of like, you know, well, I saw this and I should have known this and I should have known that and not to blame them. But one of the managers said, I, I saw all the signs, but I didn't know how to have a conversation. And so how do we teach individuals how to recognize and respond to have these crucial, uncomfortable conversations with people? I think the other half is I think we're starting to focus a lot on what companies should do. But I do feel like it's two pronged where one, yes, I think for companies, it has become the duty of care. And I use that word very strongly has become the duty of care for companies to implement well-being initiatives. And also, you know, there's trainings on how individuals can become more aware and take action because we can talk about this all daily, the things that you and I, you know, teach, but are people taking action? And so the second piece is how do individuals take action? Because ultimately that's their mental health. That's their brain health that they should be managing. Like you can't, you don't want to put everything into somebody else's hands for you. Like you don't say, okay, Lee, you tell me when I'm going to go to the doctor's. No, I'm very preventive about it. And so I have that preventative checkup where we have to change our mindset the same way to also be able to have that preventative care for our our mental health and brain health. But, you know, it can start on such a simple level, like how I mean, the brain controls your communication, how you communicate effectively. And the brain says, keep it simple, stupid. Um, (laughs) And but we don't usually do that. We go on and on and on. So. Just, you know, to stop and look at how we say what we want, what we say. Um, I have seen some really good changes, not on just on a personal level, but on a professional level, how you say what your what your message is, because sometimes we all get, you know, we get so elaborate and so ornate mm-hmm. and it sounds really good. Mm-hmm. But who the heck understands it? <laughs> right. So I think that. You know, 
mental health, brain health is going to become more and more important in the next, I, I, you know, my initial reaction is in the next year, but I think it's going to become more and more important in the next five years. Because if you look at over the last 18 months, suicides have increased, Mm -hmm. abuse, drug addiction has increased, alcoholism has increased, um, anxiety, depression, all of these things have increased. Mm -hmm. And when we come out of, we're all looking for the new normal. I mean, I'm still grieving my old normal. Mm -hmm. And that's a process that we have to go through. And on a personal level, I think I've finally gone through the grieving process Mm -hmm. and let it go. Um, I didn't want to, but I recognized it was holding me back and it was impacting my, you know, it impacted my ability to stay present in the now. So I had to let that go. And I think that that's one thing if we can all focus on staying present. And this is a true statistic. Harvard Health, one of my favorite, 80% of us are either lost in the past or we're worrying about the future. We cannot stay present. So true. So true. And, you know, Lee, you, you mentioned something very interesting because you said, you know, you were grieving. And as I talk to individuals within corporations, they have not viewed these last 18 months as as grief or when they talk about grief, they talk about grief more in the sense of I lost a loved one. I lost a friend. And I have to put it into perspective for them and say, in reality, we have all, whether we lost someone, a person or not, we have all lost something. So when it comes to grief, the grief that we have experienced of, you know, when things were locked down, you know, we lost our hairdressers, our nail techs, we lost our favorite restaurants. Some of us truly did lose our job, which meant we lost our finances, you know, due to being in relationships that kind of brought things to the surface for people. You know, our relationship status has changed for some people. So the loss that we've experienced is the reality that we need to face that there is that grieving process and that we have to go through that grieving process as well, which I think many people are missing that. Well, and I think many people forget some of us get a sense, our sense of identity through our community. Mm-hmm. When my church shut down, uh, I was amazed at, at, at how many people that's their, that's where they volunteer. Yes. That's their spiritual being and when that shut down, I mean, that just was like kicking them in the gut. Yeah. And it's Great. not just, yeah. and I felt that way when my gym was shut down, to be honest. Yes. I mean, so it's that sense of community that we had to give up. And for many people, they haven't been able to recreate that. I'm amazed. Our, my church has been reopened for a while, but I'm amazed at how small the in-person attendance is. Oh, wow. I mean, the the online attendance is great, but see, I'm that type of person. I need I need to go there. I need mm-hmm. to feel it. I need mm-hmm. to. And more people, I think, are. Uh, but what holds them back is fear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your, you know, Lee, you were talking about, you know, I, you feel like in the next few months that, you know, we're really going to see the real importance of, you know, the mental health and brain health and having those discussions. And I think, you know, Yes, that is true. Like, I think we haven't even seen the peak of what we're going to see when it comes to the mental health and brain health challenges that people are experiencing. Um, We we are going to be on embark on a tsunami of and I use yes, a tsunami of mental health challenges that people are going to be faced with. And we have to be prepared for that. And 
again, when you think about the last 18 months, we're not just talking about COVID. We're talking about the social injustice that you know many people have faced, the political climate, not to mention our everyday stressors that people still have an experience. Like we can't forget about that. So although these challenges of mental health have always been present, I think COVID has been the catalyst to exasperate these mental health uh, challenges that many individuals have faced and will face. Well, and I think COVID has brought the what ifs into an, at an outrageous level, you know, mm-hmm. well, what if? Because with COVID, it was a daily, well, what if? Well, what if? And with the with the election and the whole mm-hmm. racial, I mean, what if, what if, what if? And and so that's almost become a song that we've got stuck in our brain. Mm-hmm. And it plays over and over and over. And But there's goodness with that what if. And one of the things that I did for the beginning of the year is I made a vision board. Mm-hmm. And I just... You know how you make a vision board. I cut out pictures of of things that attracted me. And one of the things was the term, what if? Mm. And I thought, because there's so, oh my gosh, I came up with so many positive what ifs. And you can have just as much fun playing the what if game as, as you can let it take you down to your knees. Absolutely. Because when you say what if, it's about all the possibilities. And when you think about the possibilities, it just creates excitement of what is to be. And for me, what if is can be a whole lot of fun. Who knows, Connect? What if I learn how to play golf really <laughs> well this year? Hey, I'm rooting for you, girl. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna go on tour or anything, but what if I got good enough that I could actually play a real game with somebody? Hey, what if I turn on the TV and I see Lee playing golf touring the world? <laughs> <laughs> then you'll become a big believer in the what ifs. <laughs> But, you know, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I think that there's some really good takeaways for people, both employees and employers from today's show. And I think if I wanted to leave them with one, mine would be the importance, please, please recognize the importance of brain health and how that impacts mental health. And what would yours be? You know, I would I would leave people with a quote because I think it sums it up. Uh, amazingly, where mental health needs more sunlight, more candor, and more understanding conversations. And so ultimately what that means is it's time to really start talking about mental health and having these unashamed conversations, not only in our personal lives, but also within our organizations. I think that's a, that is a great quote. And I think that's a, a certainly is, you know, put the spotlight on it. And if, One of the things on my vision board is to be the pioneer spirit behind brain health. And I think that if we all start to just understand the importance and how it impacts us on a daily basis, we can all contribute something to that on some level. So, Kinnett, if somebody was interested in learning more about you after today, how would they find you? Absolutely. So on LinkedIn, they can find me at Dr. Kinnett Thigpen and in all other social media sites as far as Facebook, Instagram, um, WellTrust Partners. That's WellTrust Partners. Okay. And Dr. Kinnett is K-E-N-N-E-T-T-E, right? Correct. Yeah, that's a mouthful right there, baby. (laughs) (laughs) We connect with (laughs) Kinnett. There you go. I love that. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show with me today. And and actually, you've helped me reframe, you know, some of my own personal thoughts. So I feel like I leave this show better informed with more to offer to everyone I speak with. And, and I really appreciate that. 
Absolutely. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you and seeing and chatting with you again, of course. Well, thank you. And I hope I look forward to seeing you next year at the same conference. You got it. Take care. You too. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio,